want to start this morning uh, in prayer. We often do that, but just some specific things that you can be praying for as you listen to me pray. There's some people in our church body right now who are just deeply hurting. Um, not, not simply because of the holidays. There's sickness. Um, there's trauma and, and difficult things going on. And my heart has been troubled um, this morning. Uh, I think some of that is attack. Sometimes when you're preaching, you get attacked. That is an occupational hazard, you might say. But uh, my heart hurts for our body. And I, I pray that you join me, or pray that you join me as I, I pray. Father, show mercy to your people now, those who are hurting. I pray for relief, Father, from sickness, the one that we know about that has plagued both our bodies, but also the ways that we think over the past couple years. God, we ask in Jesus' name, submitting to his authority and his kingship, that you would take that away. Provide relief from that, from the ways that it hurts our bodies, but also the ways that it messes with our heads and how we think about things. Bring healing, Father, in that. Thank you that you are our consolation and you bring consolation to us. Thank you that you are indeed with us. You are Emmanuel. You're not a God simply who set things in place and then has moved away from his people. You are a God who is with his people and present. Present when it feels like it and present when, when it doesn't feel like it to us. You are indeed with us. In times of plenty, in times of want, in times of abundance, in times when it feels like we're in the wilderness, you are there. You've always shown your people that. And I pray specifically for myself, God, that you would show my heart that now, that I would remember that as I pray, that I would trust in you with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding, but that I would acknowledge you in all my ways and that you would make the paths of this message straight. So we pray that these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. I want to start this morning by asking, first of all, are you, a, I guess I'll split it in two. Are you a movie person or a book person? And I know you can be both, like I'm not, it's a false dichotomy, but are you a movie person or a book person? So movie people, raise your hand, more of a movie person. Okay, that's fine. Um, book people, okay. People who don't like to raise their hands. Oh, that's tough. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, I want to show him how much I hate that he's asked me to do this. But if I do that, then I've done it. What do I do? Um, then there's both people, movie and book people. You enjoy both. And there's, I want you to think about that because I want you to think about what makes a good story. I'm not saying story like myth or fable. I'm saying when you watch a movie or read a book, what is it about it that draws you into it? How would you say that book is effective in its mission or that movie is effective in, in what it's trying to do? With movies, there's this cool aspect where you can throw in not just a story, but there's a soundtrack to it, right? So it's not just about, oh, this is telling me something. It's that this makes me feel a certain way. I remember one of our sons, I won't say who because he'd be embarrassed by this, but we were listening to a soundtrack, and I love soundtracks. Some of you know that about me. Um, little known fact, but now you know. Um, do it, what you will with that. But soundtracks are awesome because they make you feel a certain way. So we were just listening to a soundtrack on the speaker, and all of a sudden he said in his little, I think it was six-year-old way, Dad, I love the way that this makes me feel. I love the way that this song makes me feel. There's something about stories 
something about movies and books that make us feel a certain way but also think a certain way. And ultimately, they're effective because they communicate ideas, right? They communicate ideas about ourselves, about situations. And as we look at Scripture, which when we say stories, we don't mean myths, we mean accounts. Someone wrote something down about something that happened in history. They're effective, these accounts in Scripture, because they make us feel a certain way. They make us think about things, and they're effective for communicating something. Now, the tricky part is sometimes we don't always know what, what the author wants to communicate to us, right? We have to figure that out. And that's why God has appointed in, in some measure teachers in the church to help us with that. But sometimes God, in his grace, gives us this huge favor, and he just tells us. He has the author tell us exactly why something is written. So when you think of the book of Luke, which we're going to be in today, Luke 2, kind of closing out a sort of Christmas season, Luke starts by basically, he just puts his cards all out in front. He says, this is why I'm writing this. So in Luke 1, starting in verse 1, the very beginning, he, he explains why he's doing that. And then he says, hey, I wanted to give you an orderly account, Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. We know that Luke is writing Tim. We actually don't even know for 1,000% certainty that it's Luke writing it, but history has shown us that. But Theophilus, I'm writing to you, most excellent Theophilus, why? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Luke shows the point of why he's writing these things down. Why am I telling you these stories, giving you these accounts? Because I want you, Theophilus, to have certainty about the things that you've been taught. So I want you, as you're listening to me, to remember that's why Luke wrote that down. He wants the listener, the reader, to have certainty about what they've been taught. And that's important, because sometimes you get into this account, like Luke 2, verse 21. You can turn there, that's where we're going to start. And it's easy to be like, why did you write this, Luke? What's the point of this? Luke 2, 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, oh, like, we won't go into all the details of that, like, Christmas circumcision, Thank you for the laugh. It shows that you're listening. But he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Luke is intentionally writing this, right? We know that because he's told us that he is, and he's doing it for a purpose that we might have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. So it's not an accident. It's not like a random detail that Luke threw in. Oh, I'll throw in that he was circumcised and he was called Jesus because that was the name that was given him by the angel before he was um, conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, this is verse 22. According to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if we just read these things thinking they're random facts thrown in or things that don't matter, don't apply to us, secondary things, it's like, why'd you put that in there? Why not just take it out and get right to the good stuff? But I want to start by explaining why this is good stuff. And the first point that Luke is making as he writes this account, as he talks about things like the law of the Lord, the Levitical law, stuff that God commanded his people through Moses and Exodus, as he talks about these things, he wants us to know that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. 
Look at verse 21. He was called Jesus. Now, Jesus was a common name back, back then. So there were multiple people around, multiple boys called Jesus. It's like in my, one of my son's classes, there's Asher, right? There's certain names, like by time, popular names. So it's like, you say, hey, Asher. And I'm like, well, is that school Asher, soccer Asher, or this Asher? Because there's more than one Asher because it's a common name, right? My wife's name is Heather. If you look at her age, and then there's a span of Heathers, right, throughout like this 20-year period where it's Heather, 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 Heather. All these girls named Heather. It's just a common name. It's an ordinary name. This helps us rem remember that Jesus is, is a man. He's like us. But the name Jesus means that God is salvation. So while it's a common name, the name of Jesus remembers, reminds us that God saves us. So when we think about that he was called Jesus, we're to remember he came for salvation, that we need God to send someone to save us, and he did. Jesus is that someone who came to save us. Now, the circumcision part. At the end of eight days, he was circumcised. Circumcision, it's something that happened pre-law, before the law was established and communicated to people. Genesis 17. It was a sign of a covenant that God made to Abraham. If you're feeling nervous right now, don't worry, I'm not gonna go into details about it. But we need to know this. The covenant was not circumcision itself. Circumcision was a sign of a covenant that God made with Abram. Signs don't do anything except show something. Remember that. Signs don't do anything, but they show something. So as weird as that sign seems to us as we look at it, it showed something to the, the boy and then the man that bore that mark. And it's a, a promise from God includes removing something, and then it, it's a promise for generations, for something that happens through procreation for offspring, for multitudes. So Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day as prescribed by the law. Jesus was the firstborn. So the one, that, the way scripture says it in the Old Testament, if you open the womb, if you're the firstborn, the firstborn male is consecrated to the Lord. That's in Exodus 13, if, you're, if you want to read that at some point this week. And then they went, Mary and the baby, for their purification you can see that at the end of verse 24. To offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is prescribed, this purification is prescribed in Leviticus 12. Postpartum purity. Certain way for male children that are born for the mother and then a certain way for female children that are born. We're not gonna go into the details about that because we don't know all the details. But it, it's really weird for us to start thinking about Leviticus because it seems as if there's all these inconsistencies in it, right? So it's like uh, Leviticus 20, I think it is. Why don't we stone fortune tellers anymore, right? That's not part of the practice in our church, right? I hope not. Don't do that if you're into that. It's not pleasing to the Lord now. But why did Scripture have that to be the case? And then there's all these other things that are uncomfortable to talk about in terms of skin diseases or bodily discharges, or the female menstrual cycle. Those are all in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. What does that have to do with anything? And I want to just highlight two points that I want us to think about without going like headfirst into Leviticus right now. And that's that there's this idea in Leviticus of the purity of body and the fact that 
our bodies are dirty and defiled. Now that makes us feel uncomfortable, this idea that we're dirty. But it wasn't a matter necessarily of, of sin that we committed. It's just through the course of life, things happen and they defile the body. And when your body is defiled, you cannot go before a holy God. You can't do it. So the women's cycle, impure, doesn't mean she sinned in menstruation. It just means that, that's defiled. You can't go before God with that blood. It's very interesting. So there's this idea of purity and impurity, and you're, you're not fit in that way you are to go before the Lord. So think about kids, maybe, if you have kids, especially little boys, this happens a lot, but little girls too. Um, you're going to do something. So we're going to go see grandpa and grandma, or we're going to go do this or that. And you're all ready, and because they're so excited about it, they're ready like an hour before you need to leave. And then what do they do? Like within two minutes of getting ready then and waiting, they get absolutely bored out of their mind. So what do they do? They go outside, right? There's nothing wrong with them going outside. But what do they do when they're outside? They're like being really good, and then it's like, there's a pit that Dad and I dug to put, dug to put leaves in. I'm just gonna jump in the pit. And then it's like, hey, did you know, like, if you run really fast and stop, then you can slide. And then within a matter of, like, 10 minutes, they're completely covered in dirt. Boy or girl, this happens. Did they do anything wrong? Well, maybe they didn't listen to their parents. But the fact is, just by living life, just by being who they are, they're, they're impure and they're dirty. They, you can't go in front of your grandma like that. You look like a slob. Your face is all dirty. There's a leaf that's sticking out of your ear. How did that get in there? There's this idea of impurity. But then there's also an idea of holiness of the heart. There's these impure practices that reveal that we worship the wrong things. And Leviticus talks about that as well. And those are the ones that people get the most hung up on. They're called abominations. That's what Scripture says. Things that God hates. Filthy practices. When we persist in idolatry, so the worship of false gods makes us hard-hearted against the one true God. And if we keep doing that over and over and over again, our hearts get so hard that God judges us in that. And he judges us, it says in the book of Romans, through disorder, right? We're worshiping the wrong things, and then he, he, he basically disorders things to judge us. So instead of living out this picture of what it means to be with him. We're living out this picture of disorder. We become unmoored or unconnected even to these things that God created to show what true worship is. And we become living displays of God's judgment. So what does that have to do with the Christmas story? Leviticus. Later in, in Scripture, God reveals to us that the whole ceremonial system was this constant reminder that something isn't right. It's not just with our bodies, though that's true. There's, there's something wrong with our hearts. And Luke wants us to know that. Even if it seems unfamiliar to us now, the reason we teach it in this church is because we need to understand what that's pointing to. Luke points out that Jesus met the obligations of the law. But he, doing that didn't make Jesus pure it's to make us think about that system. That's why Luke brought it up. He wants us to think about the system because the system points to Jesus. God put that system in place to reveal that Jesus is the only man who's fit to go in front of God. 
So when you think, when you read Leviticus and you're like, what in the world does this mean? Start with this premise that you're being taught now at our church. And that is, the only man who's fit, who can, who can go before God in purity is Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I need Jesus to do that. Jesus is the only man who's fit to approach God. And then Jesus is the only one who can fix the false worship and idolatry in my heart. So Jesus is the one. That's what Luke wants people to know. He's pointing people to Jesus the whole time. Jesus is the son of man. He's a man, but he's the the son of God. Look at verse 25 now. You guys did a great job of being taught on circumcision. Like you did a great job. Jesus is the one, and the Holy Spirit guides people to Jesus. Verse 25, look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, the Holy Spirit guides people to Jesus. That's what Luke wants us to know here. Simeon was righteous and devout. He was dedicated to the Lord. So the pattern of his life was to be devoted to God. He lived his life to please God. And in that, he was waiting for something, the consolation of Israel. That feels very Christmas carol very meaningful. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon knew that God needed to do something. That's what Simeon was waiting for. He was waiting for God to look at their bad state, the bad spot that they were in, and to encourage them and to make it right. And in that, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It wasn't because he was righteous that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was righteous because the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was dedicated because God had showed him something. Look at verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon him. This requires some teaching. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be upon someone? One thing to point out is that when, when it says the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, this, at that time, at that specific point in time, that's an exception, not a rule. So not everyone who was righteous and devout, someone who was a, a person of God, someone who was following God, the Holy Spirit was not upon everyone. So there were others who were both righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit was not upon them. But the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Now this is where you have to be taught again. So we're going to look at Greek. And I, I want you to know I am not a Greek scholar, ancient Greek language. I'm not, I have to read other things. I have to learn in order to teach. But it's important to know in church we need to be taught, right? We need to do things. So like I get it, especially kids, you're thinking about maybe you're on break from school and you're like, don't talk about grammar and anything. I don't want to know anything about grammar. I want to know about recess. I want to know about food and I want to know about movies. But don't teach me about grammar. Too bad. In, in Greek, when they wrote it, there were, there were a couple things. And if you teach maybe Spanish, if, you, if you've taken Spanish, some of these things maybe you understand better. We don't think about them as much in English, even though they exist. But if you take in another language, these will be familiar ideas. So there's these things that are moods. Moods talk about a verb, and that, that they're kind of indicative of how. And then there's tenses, and it shows when. 
So when it talks about the Holy Spirit being upon Simeon, it's the indicative imperfect. So the, the mood is indicative, and that shows this is a statement, this is indicating a fact, something that happened. And the imperfect tense is it happened in the past, but it continued. So it's not like Jasper slapped me when I took his coffee. That happened, but it's like, Jasper's always slapping me when I take his coffee. Get the difference there? That's something that just keeps going on. So the Holy Spirit was over Simeon's life, over Simeon's heart and his mind in this ever-present, ongoing way. He was not in and out. The Holy Spirit revealed something to Simeon too. Look at verse 26. What did the Holy Spirit show to Simeon? That he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals things to us. We know now this awesome thing that we can test those things that people say have been revealed against the word of God because the ultimate revelation is the word of God, the living word of God. But the Holy Spirit showed Simeon this thing. You're not gonna die until you see the consolation of Israel, the savior of Israel. And that would be pretty exciting. Now, it'd be, when he saw him, was he like instantly kind of like, oh boy, like, okay, I saw the salvation of Israel. Like, am I gonna die right away? It'd be interesting to think of how Simeon dealt with that. But the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon, just like I'm revealing and talking to you now, Simeon knew something because God told him by his Spirit. So the Holy Spirit revealed something to Simeon, verse 26. And then verse 27, the Holy Spirit guided Simeon, right? He came in the Spirit, into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus. So the Holy Spirit guided Simeon. He went in the Spirit. There's this pattern that we see in Scripture, and I'm bringing this up because I want you to understand the Holy Spirit. In fact, as we, over the course of the next, what is it going to be like? I think until Easter, at least, we're going to be teaching from John 14 and John 15, and then into John 16, hopefully, and there's three significant parts of those chunks of Scripture that talk specifically about the Holy Spirit because we, we think that's important for our church to understand. But I want to teach you now. The Holy Spirit, there's this pattern of, of Scripture, and we'll, we'll look at it, fills people or, or does something to people, and then they respond with praise and truth. It's awesome. Like You see it all throughout Scripture. So the Holy Spirit isn't like a feeling. It's not like right here, man, and then whoop, that's not, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't do that. I'm saying the work of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. So Elizabeth, remember her? She was filled with the Spirit, Scripture says that, and she shouted, blessed are you, so blessed are you, Mary, among all women, but then blessed is the fruit of your womb, my Lord, Filled with the Spirit, Elizabeth instantly praises God for who Jesus is. Zechariah prophesied, he was filled with the Spirit, it says, and he blessed God. Why? Because he knew what God had done. He's visited and redeemed his people. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit, even from when he was in his womb. That's remarkable. That's different. That's unique. But what was John the Baptist? He was a voice crying out in the wilderness. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes on all the believers this is at Pentecost, if you know that story. What happened? They began to speak. They spoke in languages that all the people could understand. Even Peter, the apostle, 
It says he's filled with the Spirit. I think this is Acts chapter, the beginning part of Acts. And he said, there's no other name by which people are saved. So when the Holy Spirit fills us, we have the Holy Spirit with us. That is God with us, fulfilling this mission to speak the truth about Jesus. God wants our church, Summit Church, to be this place that is a spirit-filled place. And the really awesome thing is that because God wants that and has given us Jesus, it is a spirit-filled place. In Jesus, we have the spirit. He's not a force. He's not a nebulous idea. He's not a, a feeling that we have. He is a he. He's God and he is in us. And he bears witness. He points people to Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is guiding Simeon to Jesus, which emphasizes another point, and that's like encountering Jesus produces praise. Encountering Jesus produces praise. Now you'll notice there's a double asterisk on the screen. Why is there an asterisk there? You'll understand that as we look to the end of the sermon. Because encountering Jesus doesn't always produce praise. But for those who know and believe the truth about Jesus, praise is produced. They praise God. That's what we preached about. That's what Mary did. That's what Zechariah did. That's what the shepherds did. They understood something about what God had done in Jesus Christ, and they praised God for that. Because that's what God wants from it. That's his ultimate purpose, glorifying and praising God. So encountering Jesus produces praise. Let's look at Simeon's praise. Verse 28. What did Simeon do? He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Simeon praised God in this way. He, he received the gift of God. It's easy to miss at the outset of verse 28 there. He took him up in his arms. He, he picked him up. The word actually, and how most things were written back then, means he received him. He received Jesus. So there's a baby. I don't know the idea of up there as he picked him up. He took the baby Jesus into his own arms. He received Jesus. This is important for us to remember in that Simeon is looking at the salvation of, of Israel, embodied, pretty remarkable, and he picks up. There's something interactive. There's something that's personal about Simeon receiving. And his response in receiving that is that he blessed God and praised God. So I'd like you to think this morning, like put on your thinking cap. When's the last time I received Jesus? Now, as I say that, When's the last time that you received Jesus? That will make some of you very uncomfortable, right? Because you're like, oh, I, I received Jesus when I was seven years old in Mundelein, Illinois, um, in my parents' house, um, and then I'm securing that forever. And that is 100% true. So you don't have to keep receiving Jesus in terms of understanding and having faith in him. But what does your life look like in terms of your relationship with Jesus? Is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who came as a man? So he'd always been God. He added that humanity to himself. Is it personal? Does Jesus feel far away in your life? 
or does he feel like a friend? And that is not blasphemous to look at the Lord as your friend because Jesus has said that about you. He said, hey, I'm not just gonna call you servants anymore. You are servants, but I'm gonna show you something and that's, that's this, that I'm gonna call you friends now. I'm showing you things that God is revealing. When's the last time you took Jesus up in your arms? When you thought about Jesus in a personal way? When you interacted with Jesus as your Lord and Savior and friend. Simeon praised God and he received the gift of Jesus. He also praised God in that he, he said, God, you, you kept your promise to me. The Spirit guided Simeon to the temple and in seeing Christ, Jesus, the Lord, in verse 29, hey, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Peace is an awesome word. There's something about peace where everything can be going wrong and the world is just kind of this tornado around you, but in Christ you have peace. I think about Simeon. God said to him, hey, you won't die before you see the salvation of Israel, the Christ, the Messiah. And Simeon stayed in peace because he was certain of God's promise. Simeon's response when he saw the Christ, Jesus, he wasn't like, I don't want to die. He's like, now I can die. There's nothing that I have to be afraid of. Simeon likely died before anything happened in regards to seeing the, the playing out of Jesus' perfect life and his death and burial and resurrection. Simeon likely didn't see that, but he died in peace because he knew that God always kept his word. God, you kept your promise to me. You said I would see your Savior, and now I see him right in front of me. According to your word. That word there, word, it's not the word that we usually see for word. That's what's hard about English. We have like one word, word. But the Greeks had multiple words for word. Two of them that were prominent were logos, if you've heard that word. It's like the word of God. So in John, when that word is used, it's, Logos. But there's this other word, and it's basically what God has spoken. It's a really cool idea. So read verse 29 and think of that idea. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart, depart in peace according to what you have said. So what God communicates to you, what God says to you, is certainty. Simeon knew he could depart in peace now because everything that God says will happen. And he'd seen that in part, and he knew because God had said it, he'd get it in full. There's always a challenge, it seems, over the past couple of years to talk about peace and to think about things like anxiety and violence and tension and kind of these tumultuous situations. The Word of God gives us certainty that brings peace into our life. When God says something, it's guaranteed. Now, it doesn't mean it's gonna be guaranteed to pan out in the way that you would think it should, but it is indeed guaranteed to pan out. When God says something, it always comes true. And we see that in Christ Jesus. So when you have that torn up feeling, or when the many waters of your heart feel like there's a hurricane inside you, 
or there's a tornado going on in your brain, maybe you're like me and you wake up at 3.30 in the morning and there are 578,000 thoughts in your head about things to do and problems that might be existing or things that need to be taken care of. When you have that anxiety, put your heart and your mind towards Christ Jesus and the fact that God fulfills all his promises in, in Jesus. Don't be torn up, don't be anxious. You don't have to will yourself out of that. You just have to put your mind towards the Lord. And ultimately, that's because he offers salvation for everyone. Look at verse 30. Why could Simeon have this peace? Look at verse 30, come on. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon praises God because he offers salvation for everyone in Jesus. Salvation is seeable. It's real. So it's not simply a theological concept. So let's say you like studying, you're into that kind of thing, and you get your systematic theology book, and you would go to chapter, I don't know, it'd usually be like chapter 11 or something after all this other stuff, and it is soteriology, right? The study of salvation. If you study salvation and its doctrines in your big systematic theology book that you could also use for a weightlifting project, and the outcome of your study doesn't point to Jesus, you missed something and you need to go back to it. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. Simeon shows that. My eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon wasn't saying, I've seen this concept now. He's saying, I see the one who's saving me and the one who will save me and the one who has saved me. Jesus. And it's not just for Simeon. Salvation is pre prepared before all people. Simeon gets something that not many people at that time got. He got something that the prophet Isaiah understood by the Holy Spirit. And that's that Jesus is a light of revelation for the Gentiles. So up until this point, there was this clear idea that the salvation of Israel was this Messiah, the Christ. But there were all these other people who were outsiders. They were not of the nation of Israel. And most of us, I would imagine, if we lived back then, would, would fit into that group. Because we're not... Jewish by heritage. But when the prophet Isaiah talked about the Messiah to come, God's Savior, he said he would be a signal for all people, all people. And nations, that word is usually used for Gentiles, nations shall inquire of Jesus, and he is justice to the nations. And then this awesome thing, write this down, Isaiah 49, verse 6. I think I got the reference right there. Isaiah 49, 6 it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's not, that's not just something we learn that is amazing. And that is God saying, you think this is all about this? But that's too small. 
I'm going to do something bigger and more amazing. And that's how the, the promises of God always end up. They're amazing when God gives them to us. And we understand the truth of the, in them and the certainty of them. But when God carries those out, they're always bigger and they're always more amazing than the person who just receives it understands. It's too small a thing to just do this. I'm going to do something greater. God includes all people into that. That is not universalism. That does not mean that all people are saved. It means that that, that message will be, be preached to all people. Now with that, there's this idea of like, well, what God has these people, right? There's a nation of Israel. What, like, what happens to them? Look at verse 32. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles, right? Truth for Gentiles, that they would understand something and for glory to your people Israel. The revelation of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's promises doesn't eliminate the promises that he made to Israel. There's this teaching, we don't teach it at Summit Church, but it's like, all right, all the punishments that happened to the people of Israel, those were all real. Like, so there's this nation, and they disobeyed and broke the covenant, so they got the punishment. These real people got this real punishment. But then all the future promises, those are just figurative. Like, those are just these metaphorical ideas of blessing that ultimately will be filled at some point in this kind of nebulous idea. We don't, we don't teach that. We think and believe at Summit Church that the promises that God made to Israel will be fulfilled for Israel. Because when God says something and promises, he carries those out. At Summit Church, we should, we should celebrate the fact that salvation is for everyone in Jesus. Because, I think about this, uh, first day of school. Anyone remember that? I can still remember, it's slowly fading. But I, I can think of going into kindergarten. I was in Mrs. Brandt's class. Um, and I didn't, I knew some kids, but I didn't have friends. And you walk in and you see like three or four kids talking. And then there's three or kid, four kids talking over here. And you walk in and you're like, I don't have any friends. Like I'm excluded. I, do, I don't know what it, like I'm not part of this. Think about maybe the first time you came to Summit Church. If someone didn't invite you and you just walked in and you're like, there's guys over there, and they're talking about this. There's this group of women talking there, and they, at least they have cookies. Um, but like all these things going on, and it's like, am I excluded? Am I part of this? And in Christ Jesus, God is saying, you're part of this. You're not excluded. You were far off, but in Jesus, you become part of something. We can celebrate that. God offers salvation for everyone in Jesus. It's not based on your Mom and dad, it's not based on your lineage, it's not based on where you live, how much money you have or don't have. It's based on Jesus Christ. And Jesus is appointed to deal with our hearts. Look at verses 33 and 35. This is where you get into Simeon prophesying. And his father, verse 33, his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. This word marveled, we need to, like, we can read it, marveled. Ugh. The idea is they were astounded. They, they almost couldn't believe it. I know we got some younger mothers in here. Imagine God showed you something about your child. And then it was confirmed by someone that had, you'd never talked to before. You'd just be like, whoa. They marveled at what was said about him. 
And then in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, said to Mary his mother, behold. That word is all throughout scripture, behold. It means like, hey, hey, look. Behold, look at this. I'm gonna tell you something, this is important. Behold, behold, look. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is appointed to deal with hearts. Kind of middle end of verse 34 there. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This shows us that Jesus is the one who's going to do the humbling and the exalting. God is in charge of that. So he's appointed for, God appointed Jesus that some would fall and some would rise. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We can also see this, that God will lower us before he exalts us. So Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Jesus humbles people and Jesus lifts people up. And he's a sign that is opposed. Let's look at this. End of verse 34, I think that is. He's been appointed for a sign that is opposed. This means that Jesus is the thing that is argued against. I want your brain to go back to the Tower of Babel. You ever heard that story? Tower of Babel. We know what happened out of that, but there's this idea that men are like, we can exalt ourselves, and how are we going to do it? Uh, I'm going to build a tower to the sky. I'm going to build a tower to heaven to show that I can do anything. And throughout history, we've seen this, that because God is invisible, right? You, we don't see God, that the best we can do in our rebellion is to kind of look to the heavens and shake our fist at the sky and be like, ah! Think of Lieutenant Dan. Anyone ever see Forrest Gump? When he's in the storm at the, on the crow's nest of the ship, just screaming at God, is this the best that you have? Does he know God is there? I don't know what Lieutenant Dan was thinking, but I know this. He was just shouting into the sky because he couldn't see God, and the best he could do was look at the storm and say, bring it on, God. But then God comes in the flesh. In Christ Jesus, there is now something and someone for humanity to look at a person that they can oppose. So people won't just shake their fists at this invisible being in the sky anymore. People will point and shake their fists, and Scripture says gnash their teeth at Jesus. And because the church is the the body of Jesus, the bride of Christ, people will do the same thing to us in Christ Jesus. They'll point and they'll shake their fists and gnash their teeth at us. And you know what? That hurts. Look at verse 35. Simeon's talking to Mary here, but there's still stuff for us to learn. You know what, Mary? Parenthetical thought. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. As all this happens, Mary, it's going to hurt your heart. And there's the obvious thoughts of this. 
Imagine watching your son. He's taken care of you, perhaps even, and he goes out on this mission, and you know that mission is from God. And then you're standing, not immediately there, but close enough to watch your own son die on a cross. To be tortured and beaten in all the ways that we know about. That will pierce your soul. But then there's a bigger idea, too. As they fled from Herod, remember the story after this? I think we read about it in Matthew. As they read, uh, as, as we read about, they fled down because Herod was persecuting everyone. Right? Every, every child was to be killed, every male child. And the prophet said there would be a weeping in Ramah. Basically, all these women just weeping because all these male children had been killed. Imagine how that would pierce your soul to know that my, my son, who is on a mission from God, is part of this, that all those children have been killed. And then imagine even getting to Mary's heart. Bigger than all those things, the pain within life, but your son is going to expose your own rebellion too. That definitely fits the definition of a sword piercing the soul. But Jesus is appointed to do this so that what's in our hearts will be revealed. Look at the end of verse 35. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus has been appointed and was appointed to do these things so that what's in our hearts will be revealed. In the fall, we preached about the foundation of Summit Church. What's the foundation? Or who's the foundation? Someone say it. You can, you can say it out loud. It's okay. Jesus Christ. The Word of God. Peter knows it. Foundation of Summit Church is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And that should impact how we think about things. So when you hear a famous, this is a famous verse I'm going to read, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God, Jesus is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus didn't just come to deal with body things and world things. Jesus came so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I remember, I don't even, I can't even place the time on it, but I was sitting in what's now our conference room talking to someone. It was kind of a debate about how a church should operate. And it, that discussion is very pertinent in my thinking now because life feels like it's, it's all these millions of things, right? Think about what you thought about when you woke up this morning. I want coffee. I want to eat the cookies uh, that we had yesterday and have them for breakfast because you get like a week's pass that you can do that, right? You can eat food like that. I have this to do and this to do, and we're going to be traveling, so we have to do this. And then there's my children to worry about. Are they fed? Are they being educated? How is their life with their friends doing? What about my relationships with my cousins and my aunts and uncles? And all these things build up, and life feels like it's all these millions of things. So in that conversation I was having with a couple people, 
We talked about this, the fact that it feels like there's all these things all the time, so many things. And one guy said, and it's going to sound like this really profound thought. The guy's like, really in all those things, you just need to love Jesus more. And that's, that sounds good, right? And then he said, and the, the problem is that you just don't love Jesus enough. Again, that sounds very profound. Jesus came to reveal the thoughts and intentions of your heart. As I think about, you just need to love Jesus more. Just love Jesus more. You don't love Jesus enough. I feel like there's an aspect of truth to that, but it's unhelpful and it's almost a cop-out. It's almost a cop-out. Because Jesus comes to reveal the thoughts and intentions of my heart and your heart. So I was thinking uh, last, well, last night and this morning about things that they don't really plague our church, but like things in, in a church like ours, what are, what are the challenges that we have? And maybe it'll resonate with some of these. Jesus comes to deal with the thoughts and intentions of your heart. So what does your life look like? Why are you so exhausted? So you could talk about being exhausted, Right? Why are, why are you so exhausted? I'm speaking as someone who gets exhausted, right? Maybe they'd say that's preaching to the choir or preaching to myself. Why are you so busy? Why is your life so busy? See, Jesus comes to deal with the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So he would say, yeah, you're, you're busy. You're overcommitted. Why are you that way? Why are you busy because you're overcommitted. Why do you obsess about, like in an unhealthy way, about the safety of your children? Again, Jesus comes to deal with the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Why do you worry? Why are you willing to be so mean to people about politics? Why? Why, why are we that way? Why do you look down on poor people? The list could go on in a way where we would all just leave weeping and like a bowl of jelly on the floor. Why? Why are we that way? Jesus came and was appointed to deal with those things, the thoughts and intentions of our heart. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he works in your life to get to your heart. That's what he was appointed for. But here's the awesome thing. Here's why we say, God, we praise you for Jesus. Because he, Jesus Christ, is God. And he deftly and perfectly and kindly and gently cuts all those things away. So when we think about all these whys, why am I exhausted? It's because I do too many things that aren't important. Why am I so busy? Because I overcommit. Why? Because I think I need to do things in order to be satisfied. Why do I worry about my children? Because ultimately, I don't trust God, that he's looking out for them, and he loves them more than I do, which is unbelievably a great amount. Why am I so willing to be mean to people about politics? That's like a whole sermon series. Why do I look down on poor people? Because I want to feel good about myself. 
Jesus deals with all those things, and he strips them off. And in the end, it's like Job standing before God. They've been going back and forth, and Job is like, yeah, but, 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 yeah, but. And then finally, God has him to the point where he's just like, fine, I'm not. And then he's, yeah, but, and then finally, he's like, I'm gonna put my hand over my mouth. I'm not gonna say anything, God. And it's, it's just you then before the Lord. And he's dealing with the thoughts and intentions of your heart. He's deftly and perfectly and mercifully getting you to the point where he's like, what is this all about? And he says, as we look at scripture, we know he could say something like this. I've taken care of all the defilement stuff. So the impurity aspect. You're not dirty anymore. I've given you garments of salvation I've given you robe, a robe of righteousness. I've dealt with the impurity part. I've given that to you. That's, that's done with. You don't have to worry about that. You are clean because I've said you are. And I took on the impurity. So let's talk about your heart. And then he stays with you in that. He works through the matters of your heart with you. And he does that in different ways for different people. Sometimes he involves the body of Christ. Sometimes he involves the quiet moments that you have in the morning or in the evening with him. But Jesus was appointed to deal with the thoughts and intentions of your heart and praise God that he does it. And we have this promise, you see it a lot in the book of Ezekiel, that he's gonna do something to our hearts. He's gonna give us a new spirit and a new heart, soft hearts. This morning I personally praise God for Jesus because as I look at my life, he tore all these things away and tore out, down all these idols and he keeps doing it that I have and in the end, I'm standing there, and there's this truth that I'm like, I really do want to love you, Jesus, but you've got to do something to make it happen. And he does. So I can say and confess with my mouth, I love Jesus. And it's not because of anything that I've done. It's just that he's shown me that there's nothing I can do except say, help me, Jesus, help me to love you. And that's my prayer for our church this morning and as we go forward. So bow with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise God for you. You are the king. You are powerful. You have promised to come back, and we, we can be certain of that. Help us to remember that you're the one. You're the promised one. Help us never to forget that, that the things that were written in former days were written for instruction, that we might have hope and encouragement that we would understand the purpose of things that you put in place like the law and ceremony and systems of sacrifice. Help, help us to understand how those point to you and to praise you in those things. Work in our hearts that we would understand what you've done and that would produce a sacrifice of praise in us. And help us to remember, don't let us forget that you were appointed to deal with our hearts. So when we start to make it about all the things Tear away those things, Lord Jesus. And push our hearts to you. Thank you that we can pray in your name according to the authority that you've given us because of your grace and mercy and love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.